The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Good morning, Bethlehem. Wow, he all responded. Thank you. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. My name is Matt Moore. Uh, Kenny introduced me at the beginning of the service, but I know sometimes people trickle in. So if you weren't here, um, my name is Matt Moore. I work here at Bethlehem Baptist Church. My title is Ministerial Director for Operations. Um, In function, I help Kenny and the pastors and Paul and the elders with about 10,000 different things. I'm also a student at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Uh, my wife and I moved up here at the end of 2019, so we've been, she's been at Bethlehem for a very long time. Uh, but we've been here together for the last four years. Um, I completed uh, BCS's evening degree program, got a Bachelor in Theology last year, and am now in their Masters of Exegesis and Theology program. So I'm, I'm here as a Bethlehem guy and as a BCS guy. Uh, My wife and I generally sit back there, sometimes over there, Uh, kind of been over here since we had a kid close to the nursery. (laughs) But um, I'm privileged and honored to be right here with you all today, sharing God's word with you. So would you please pray with me that God would bless our time together. Father, thank you for these last 30 minutes of worship. Just testify before these brothers and sisters what these last 30 minutes have done in my soul. They've done in my soul what I want your word to do in the souls of all of these people here, and that is expel fear. God, I pray that through your word over these next 30 minutes or so that we would see you. We would look through your word to you, that we would see your face and that we would see you as you are, that we would see you as powerful and mighty, possessing the highest authority that there is and wielding that authority for our good, because you love us and you care for us. You are with us in the fire, you are with us in the storm, and I pray that by your spirit you would help us believe that, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So far in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has not, in front of his disciples and in front of the watching world, explicitly communicated his identity as the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. But, to borrow the Apostle John's phrase, he has been revealing his glory. He has been revealing, in particular, the glory of his divine authority. We've seen it so far at both his teaching and in both his supernatural, miraculous ministry. Luke says that the authority with which... So all teaching possesses authority. Teaching by nature is authoritative. But the way that Jesus was teaching was different. Just a couple of examples As Jesus is going back and forth with the Pharisees about Sabbath regulations, Jesus implies, well, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is God's command. It's part of the Mosaic law. Jesus here is positioning himself in a place of authority over the Mosaic law, saying that he has the authoritative right to interpret and decide how God's commands are obeyed. In at least two other places, Jesus assumes the authority and exercises it to forgive sins a role that's reserved only for God. In an example of a, of a paralytic man, he forgives that man's sins. In the example of a sinful woman, he forgives her sins. And Jesus, while going about this astonishing teaching ministry, is testifying to the truth and authenticity of what he's teaching in his miracles, in his supernatural works. We see Jesus exercising demons left and right. We see Jesus rebuking fevers, healing paralytics. We see Jesus raising a boy, a widow's son, from the dead. Jesus is coming face to face with the powers of hell and death, and he's overcoming them demonstrating that his authority is greater than theirs. Nothing like Jesus' ministry has ever been seen in Israel. I'd say probably the closest thing to it would, be, would have been the ministry of Moses. And in, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses, seeing Christ's day from afar, prophesies to the people of Israel, saying, The Lord your God will rise up, raise up a prophet like me from among you, and it is to him that you shall listen. Jesus is that Moses-like prophet. He's so much more than a prophet. But he is that Moses-like prophet, and it is to him that his disciples have been listening, that the watching world has been listening, to whom we have been listening. And now in our text today, Jesus is going to reveal a new dimension of his divine authority and glory. So I I know that we just read the text, um, but to recap the story, Jesus tells his disciples to get with them into a boat, and they're going to sail across the lake. And 
So the disciples do what their master says. They get into the boat to sail across the lake. They have no idea what's ahead of them. We normally don't when we obey Jesus, but we trust him and we follow him. As they're sailing on the lake, a furious storm comes upon them. And the storm is objectively furious. It's objectively powerful. Its power is tremendous. Luke describes its waves as raging. He says the the water is filling the boat. I think in Matthew's account, he says the water is swamping the boat. This is an objectively, in and of itself, terrifying storm. And all the while, Jesus is asleep down in the stern, calmly asleep. His disciples, as you may expect, were anything but calm. They were frantic with fear. They were terrified for their lives. Death was looming. They could see it in the face of the waves and in these winds. And they they go to Jesus and they shake him awake and say, Master, Master, we're perishing. Mark, in his account of this story, rounds out um, their, their words to him. It gives us insight into their tone, into their demeanor. It says, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus, why are you sleeping? Are you oblivious to what's happening or do you just not even care? Jesus is not oblivious. Jesus is never oblivious. Jesus is not uncaring. He's never uncaring. He wakes up, and I don't know exactly how this went, but in my imagination, he stands up, if he can, in this boat. He stands between his trembling, frantic, fearful disciples and the content of their fear and looks into the face of the storm and says, Peace, be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed. They stilled. It was a great calm. Jesus has now revealed a new dimension of his divine authority. He's already showed he has power over sickness. He's already showed that he has power over the spiritual realm, over demons. Now he's saying, I have power over the seas. I have power over the weather. I have power over all of reality. His disciples are pretty unsettled by it. At the end of the passage, Luke says that they were afraid. So they've been afraid of the storm, and now they're fear is directed at Jesus. But I would say that these are two different kinds of fear. They were terror-stricken at the storm. But when looking at Jesus and what he's done, they have a, a marveling fear. They were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who is this one whom the winds and waters obey? This one whom the winds and the waters obey 
is the one whom the winds and waters have always obeyed. Yahweh, God. In Psalm 65, 7, it is said that God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. In Psalm 89, the psalmist praises God. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Jesus rules over the winds and the waves and over demons and over death and sickness and sin because he's God. Jesus is God. If you're not familiar um, with Christian teaching and theology, and I assume that there, there may be people in this room, this is your first time to a Christian church. I heard that this was somebody's story recently. This all may be new to you. And this statement that Jesus is God probably sounds astonishing. <laughs> it is. I've been astonished by the reality that Jesus is God since I became a Christian 13 years ago. Jesus' divinity is one of the foundational beliefs of the Christian faith. Anybody that says that they're a Christian or that they're part of a Christian church but denies the divinity of Jesus is not Christian. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the eternal Son. Uncreated from everlasting to everlasting. And the reason that he's here in this boat, in this story, is because he chose to empty himself. To take on the form of a servant. To be born in the likeness of human flesh. To take on the weakness of a human body. And he did this for us and for our salvation. In his body... Jesus lived the Godward, holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving of God and others' life that we have all failed to live. And he did this for us in our stead. In his body, he took upon himself the penalty for our sins. He took upon himself the wrath of God that was reserved for our sins. He was crushed in his body for our iniquities. And then in his body, as we just sang about a few minutes ago, he rose from the grave. Jesus, in his resurrection, in his body, demonstrated that he is the Lord and Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who has authority over all reality. And he demonstrated the resurrection hope that awaits all who believe in him, who trust in him, who have faith in him. Now, I know this, we know this from our vantage point. The disciples didn't know all of this yet. Jesus' identity wasn't crystal clear. But they'd witnessed enough. Enough of his glory, enough of his power, 
enough of his divine authority that they should have exercised more faith in him in this storm. And the one thing that Jesus says to them in the midst of all of this, he puts his finger on that. After he calms the winds and the waves, he turns to his trembling, frantic disciples and says, where is your faith? And again, Mark and Matthew and their accounts help round this out. In Mark's account, Jesus says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Matthew's account, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Let's think for a minute about the fear that these disciples were experiencing. First glance, and maybe in a second and third and fourth and fifth glance, it seems reasonable. <laughs> this storm is tremendously powerful and in and of itself, all other factors not considered, is a threat to them. They are looking into the storm and rightly assessing it as dangerous. The problem, though, is that they're focused on this piece of reality. They are zeroed in on this storm, and who can blame them because it's loud and it's furious and it's terrifying? They're not looking to Jesus and rightly assessing him as infinitely more powerful than this storm. They're not even looking at him in his calmness and his sleep and inferring from that, I think, I think we're okay. If we're in a really dangerous situation, Jesus would be acting different, but he's, but he's not. So I think that we're okay. If they had been interpreting Jesus, or I'm sorry, if they had been interpreting this storm in light of what they knew and saw through eyes of faith in Jesus, they would have probably, they would have definitely been behaving differently. They would have been feeling differently. There probably would have been some adrenaline pumping. <laughs> they probably would have been asking questions, other questions that we see in the Bible from people of faith. How long, O oh Lord? We know that you're in control. We know that we are ultimately safe with you, but this is hard and this is scary. How long are you going to let this rage on? But that's not how they come to him. Master, master, we're perishing. They're terrified. They're despairing. Borderline hopeless. Borderline faithless. I say borderline because these disciples, most of them, maybe Judas accepted if he's there, they do have faith. That's why they're with Jesus in the boat. They've seen something of his glory as he has exercised demons from people, as he's rebuked fevers, as he has healed paralytics, as he has raised 
boys from the dead as he is taught with authority about the kingdom of God. As they watch Jesus do that, do this, God has awakened faith in their hearts, and that faith has led them to leave everything, their homes, their families, their jobs, life as they know it, they have left to embark on this unpredictable journey of following Jesus. But right now, their faith, their, their spiritual sight of Christ is almost totally obstructed by the content of their fears. In this moment, their minds are so flooded by the loudness. Their senses are overwhelmed. Their bodily senses are overwhelmed. And their new, developing, immature faith that is inside of them is struggling to open its eyes and to get Jesus into view. Their old natural mind in this moment has taken control and it's dictating how they see reality. My next subtitle here is Relatable. Every single Christian sitting in this room, every single Christian that has ever sat in this room or in the old sanctuary over the last 152 years, every single Christian that has ever walked the face of the earth can look at the way that the disciples are feeling and behaving and relate. We know fear. Everybody struggles with different things to different degrees, but fear is one of those universal struggles among Christians. We all know fear. We know fear of death. We know fear of pain. We know fear of loneliness, of rejection, of public shame. I have felt that over the last three days as I've prepared to step into this pulpit. Fear of public shame. Of losing certain blessings. Of never attaining other blessings. We know fear. I do. I've, whew, I've always had a nervous and anxious temperament ever since I was a kid. I asked my parents that. They're watching right now from Louisiana. Um, you, if you ask them if they're here again, they'll tell you, yep, he's always been a little bit nervous. <laughs> but in my 20s, my struggle with fear took on a whole new intensity. To the point that a doctorate in 2018 diagnosed me with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. I was consumed by irrational fears, fears that I could see were, did not make sense. They were irrational. The content of the fears was a little wonky. And even though I could see that, it, it wasn't, and I'm contrasting that with, the, with what the disciples are facing in the boat. That's a reasonable fear. Mine were unreasonable. Yet I felt just like those disciples in that boat. For several years, years, my spiritual side of Christ 
was almost totally obstructed by this invisible storm of thoughts in my mind. Like these disciples, I was not seeing Jesus and interpreting my situation, interpreting reality in light of his power and grace toward me. Power and grace that I had seen. I'd seen it in the Bible and I believed it. And I've seen his power and grace toward me over the last 13 years as a Christian. And even the power and grace that he poured out on me even before that. My trust in him at times was all but shriveled up. So I can totally put myself in the place of these disciples and see Jesus looking at me and saying to me, Matt, where's your faith? I'm sure most of you can too. We all know fear. We all know how hard it is at times in these stormy situations that we find ourselves in to exercise the faith that God has gifted us with. So, as disciples who are cut from the same cloth as the disciples in that boat, I want us to look together and take to heart the grace in Jesus' response to them. The first grace that we see is the grace of correction. His question, where is your faith, is not merely an inquiry. It has a corrective flavor to it. It is a rebuke. Jesus is not wrathful toward us in our sin and unbelief. The wrath of God has been extinguished upon the head of Christ when he offered himself up for us. If you are in Christ, if you believe in him, if you have faith in him, though you struggle to exercise it at times, if you have faith in him, he is not wrathful towards you when you struggle to exercise it. But though he's not wrathful toward our sin and unbelief, he also doesn't ignore our sin and unbelief. He identifies it. He shines his light onto it, onto the dark and weak places of our heart, to the trembling places of our heart to bring about repentance and growth. Jesus rebukes the disciples' lack of faith here, not because he wants to crush them, but because he wants to crush their faith but because he wants to enliven it. He wants to call this trembling, shriveling up faith forth. He wants it to grow. Divine correction. And it still comes to us all. The Bible is full of corrective instructions. It's not all feel-good grace. A lot of it is tough grace. Hebrews 12 is a good word for us here. And speaking about God's corrective acts and words towards us, the writer says, 
God is treating you as sons, as daughters, as children. Not as servants. We are his servants. But when he corrects us, as a father to a child. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. It's not coming at you to crush you. Don't despair. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Divine correction is grace. Second grace that we see is the grace of preservation. When the disciples come to Jesus all but losing their minds and have definitely kind of lost most of their faith, he doesn't fold his arms angrily and scowl at them and tell them, I'm not going to act for your benefit or for your good until you get your faith together. He gets up and again stands between his trembling, frantic, faith-struggling disciples and calms the storm. He eliminates the content of their fears. He preserves them. I'd actually even say, backing up to the corrective grace that we just talked about, corrective grace is a preserving grace. Jesus draws attention to their lack of faith in order to preserve it. And by preserving their faith, he's preserving their souls for all of eternity. (laughs) The value of faith in a soul preserved is worth so much more than the value of a temporary body preserved. In his correction, he's preserving their souls for the day that he sees them face to face. Jesus' disposition, capital D, dominant disposition towards his people, even when they sin, even when they lack faith, is grace. Sometimes it's tough grace. And corrective, but it's always grace. In this story here, in Luke eight, twenty-two to twenty-five, Jesus in his grace calms the storm. But grace does not always calm the storm. You all know that. Sometimes, in God's wisdom, the storm rages on. And that's, in God's wisdom is not a throwaway phrase. God, in evaluating the storm that is raging upon us and all of its pain and all of its hardship, has wisely, providentially decided that it is better for us to be in the midst of the storm and for it to rage on than for him to eliminate it right now. God, in his wisdom sometimes allows storms to rage on for weeks, months, years, for all of life. 
There are many types of storms in life that produce many kinds of uh, physically or emotionally painful experiences. It doesn't always manifest in fear. When this pressure comes upon us, it doesn't always come out in fear. It can come out like depression, sadness, frustration, anger. I think about people who in their bodies endure disabilities or daily chronic pain that God in his wisdom has chosen not to heal in this life. I think about people who suffer the lifelong, unending heartache that follows losing a loved one. In my work here at Bethlehem, I walk with families through funeral preparations. And this has become so much more clear to me than it was before. The heartache and the pain, unrelenting. People who day after day experience unexplainable feelings of anxiety. Anxiety that's not attached to anything. It's not attached to any content, but just this ongoing nervousness or, or even depression that's unrelenting. They hate it. They don't align with it, but they can't turn it off. People who struggle against patterns of temptation that they hate and that they are so ashamed of that they can't make it stop. God may not deploy his grace to calm these storms but he will deploy his grace to calm us as we endure them. He will deploy his grace to console us, and to strengthen us, to preserve us, to refine us in the midst of them. And when I say he will deploy his grace, what I mean is he will deploy himself. God is gracious to us in giving us himself. Just as he was with Jesus in this, or just as he was with the disciples in this boat in the midst of this storm, he is with us in the midst of ours. We may not see him clearly like they weren't seeing him clearly. And so we not, may not be feeling and experience all the positive benefits that come when we look at Jesus and have faith in him. But he's there. The storm may rage on until glory But if we're in Christ, so will our faith. So will we. He will preserve us, strengthen us, refine us, sanctify us until we see him face to face. You can trust him to do that. The disciples weren't trusting him to do that in this particular situation. And I think this text is here to show us that Jesus says, you can trust me. In closing, I'd like to do something a little bit different. Don't get nervous. (laughs) I would like to read the Bible to you. I would like to read a few scripture passages that I think are particularly fitting for those of us who find ourselves in storms, 
They are particularly faith-building. I invite you to close your eyes. Do whatever you, do whatever you need to do to focus. But ask God, as I prayed at the beginning of this sermon, I ask God, I'll ask him now. God, I pray that as I read your words to these people, that they would see through these words to you. God, reveal yourself to us now. We can do nothing apart from you. We need you to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that you would do that in the power of your spirit right now as your word is read. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. For the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Finally, brothers and sisters, hear the words of the Lord Jesus to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Father, we are totally dependent on you. We are totally dependent on you to do every good thing that you've called us to do, include believe. God, help us believe. We believe. Help our unbelief. But even now, as we come to the table to remember your body that was broken for us and your blood that you shed for us, give us grace to see you and to believe. Help us, Lord. Help us in your grace. We know that you love us. We know that you are gracious toward us. We know that you possess all authority in heaven and earth, and you wield it for our good. Help us to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.